absolutely ridiculous. Hello, everybody, and welcome to day. I don't even know anymore. All the days seem the same. Um, but this is the diary of life in the bubble with yours truly, Amanda Sobe. This is my last audio entry of the week. Um, I am out of the Manchester Open. I unfortunately lost in the quarterfinals to Noral Tayeb who is in the finals now. Um, there is some good stuff, but, you know, just the consistency is not where it's at after six months off, and so lots of stuff to build off of, but the good news is that there's going to be more chances. So, you know, take the positives, learn from it, and move on and get stronger from there. But now that I'm out, I basically have to abide by government rules for the UK. So technically, I'm an exempt country, so I have to be in social isolation until I fly out on Wednesday the 23rd to Egypt. So I am flying out of London, which means either wherever I go, either if I'm going to social isolate in London or in Manchester before I go down to fly out, I can't really be going anywhere. Um, so I have been still in the hotel, um, just social isolating and staying in the bubble and just making sure that I am staying safe and healthy. I don't want to risk anything, especially when I have to go play a tournament. Egypt requires a COVID test at least three days before flying, so I PSA administered the COVID test, and that's why I decided to stay in Manchester, and I'm going to take the train down to London and social isolate at a buddy's place, and then I'm flying to Egypt on Wednesday. Once I get to Egypt, I'll be staying at my dad's house since he lives over there um, for a few nights and then I'll be moving into the hotel to prepare for the world tour finals. So I'm excited to head off to a new country and fly out. I think I've spent enough time um, in this hotel room in Manchester and so I'm looking forward to kind of uh, getting out and about and having a teeny bit more freedom. But all in all, I have to say well done to PSA for making us feel extremely safe. No one really knew what to expect in this first tournament back, and they've done a phenomenal job on keeping us safe in the bubble and making sure that the risk of us potentially getting COVID is at a minimum. So hats off to them. Hopefully tournaments other tournaments coming up will follow suit um, in keeping us safe. And I'm looking forward to the World Tour Finals next week. So thank you all for tuning in. hope you enjoyed it um, to hear what life in the bubble is like. And good luck to the finalists today. Over and out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Around the Course Squash Podcast. That was Amanda in the final of our audio diaries this week. And we just want to say a big massive thank you to Tesney, Amanda, Declan, and Ali Farag for their time in that. And also for, to hear from Tim Garner yesterday and what he had to go through in the organizing committee. 
My name is Arthur Gaskin. With me as ever is Stuart Crawford and Christopher Sackfee. And I'm also delighted to welcome the coach of the two Shivagi brothers and Joel King, amongst a few others, Hadrian Stiff. How are you doing, fellas? Good, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for getting me on, guys. This is exciting. Yeah. You look yeah. excited. I am. I am pretty excited, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said when we were we were messaging, it's like if nothing else, especially for you know you, you and I, Arthur and I, and Stuart, I haven't seen for years. It's just an opportunity to actually see some old faces and have a chat as well. But obviously, we'll we'll keep it keep it squash. Yeah, I feel like we're the ones that should be excited, but never mind. Okay. <laughs> excited, and and our and our listeners, cause they've had to hear us every day just talk about the matches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure it's been great. <laughs> <laughs> All 12 of them loved it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you say old faces. Jesus, I tell you, I love the beard, man. Yourself and Shabaggy having a beard off? I just shaved mine this morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, my, it's, as you can imagine, lockdown's just an excuse. It's, um, it's just laziness and uh, time and laziness. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think Mo made a pact that he's going to keep it if he won, so... He's going to carry on growing his until it gets tangled up in his feet, I think. Does he draw his strength from it? Do I draw strength from it? <laughs> no, does he draw strength from it? Well, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems yeah. he's drawing strength from somewhere this week. <laughs> maybe it was the beard. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the playoff beard. Do, uh, do uh, soccer players or anyone uh, grow playoff beards? like big hockey thing. Football. Is it? Too. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's a big, big hockey thing. Uh, Guys yeah. grow out their playoff beards right at the start of the playoffs. And, you know, if you make the finals, you're whatever, eight weeks in. And, yeah, these some of these guys have these huge bushy beards. <laughs> and then some of the young, like, 21-year-olds from, you know, Sweden have these little yeah. wispy yeah. mustaches. A little uh, pull call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So um, let's start with Mohammed. I mean, what a week. I feel like. I was just looking at it last night and I was kind of taking down some notes and part of me feels like we might be witnessing a bit of history here. Um, I mean, we won't know that until, I mean, regardless of what happens, if he never picked up a racket again, he's going to go down as one of the greats. But at 28, 29 years of age, he's got a lot more to give, a lot more titles that he could potentially win. I mean, looking at him yesterday and throughout this whole week and all the challenges that everyone faced and he himself came out on top. And, you know, you've been there from the very start of a senior career, certainly from the age of 18, 19, 10, 11 years. What, what do you take from it? What, as you look at it now and you sit back on a Monday morning with a flat white and a croissant, how do you... You know me too well. <laughs> <laughs> how do you reflect on that? How do you, do you look at it as a whole or will you just kind of, will you reflect on that just as the week that, that it's been? Um, I mean, how do you look at it? Well, it's interesting how you put it there, actually, um, in relation to, you know, this week, as you say, it's uh, another title, 42 titles. Uh, he's made history already, um, as you can probably, when you see in his interviews, you know, this is very much part of one of his key drivers is to to leave a huge mark on the sport and, and go down as, you know, one of the greatest players of all time. Um, and yeah, I mean, at the end of the week, for me, it was... Um, exciting on a, on a few different levels one is is to confirm I think to all of the team involved with with Mohammed that uh, what we did over the last period uh, was effective um, it worked well uh, certain areas where um, it can work better 
just actually make it way more exciting. And as, as you pointed out there, Arthur, I mean, the whole thing with with Mohammed um, is that his his ability to be successful um, is not just about the, the characteristics that we kind of see often on the PSA TV and the, the beast mode and this sort of warrior type uh, individual. It's the fact that he has the um, the this kind of long term vision and, and in, in a way the courage to say, yeah, but how can I, you know, innovate again? How can I change again? And one of the conversations we had early on when the, our kind of summer training first started and we were mapping out the vision for this period is to um, to arrive at this event and show people something new, you know, and something different, not just for the sake of doing that, but just to prove to the world and to himself that that he's ready to um, to innovate again and reinvent himself, you know, in certain ways again, in order to become an even better version of what he's done before. And um, regardless of whether he even won the event or not, uh, I believe that he really committed to that all the way through. And um, as you all know, that's easier said than done, particularly when you're number one. Uh, Well, I don't know how that feels. (laughs) Well, no, no, it's all relative, of course, but you know, we've all been there in different ways, you know, to, to make a significant change that you don't necessarily know, you know, you think it's probably going to make a difference, but you don't definitely know. It's very easy to do what you've always done and stick to your, you know, let's say your defaults and your successful formulas. And, um, you know, there were many things that we worked on and changes that we made, which um, are carried to some extent a risk. But as I've really said to him all the way along, as he's gone through his career, being at the top, being toppled off, got back up, being toppled off again and got back up. And it's all about responding in the right way um, and um, and taking those experiences and those messages from the other players as they play you in a different way they put you into different parts of the core okay so what can we learn from why people are doing this to you where are they hurting you what are we going to change what can you which areas can you um which areas can you grow most in you know and uh all all credit to him particularly in his let's say his latter years the last sort of two years i'd say he's had more confidence and experience to be able to go yeah this is what I have to do and this is what I want to do um so this event for me great win and you know I'm I'm extremely pleased for him and everybody that's been involved in the process so far but I'm just really excited about the opportunities for getting better you know and and that's the bit excites me and like you just said there Arthur then I'm kind of thinking well you can definitely get way better in a yeah. few areas, which is quite frightening for the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing that really stood out, and you touched on it there at the start, was in his, match, in his post-match interview yesterday, he talked about as a young person, like his goal wasn't to become world number one, but that he wanted to, to leave a mark. And because he sort of, I think he alluded to yesterday in his interview that if he got to world number one, he'd get there, and then that was it. But mm. just to see him sort of constantly, like you, and you've, said it as well like just to reinvent himself or to develop improve and for personal mm. and professional growth like mm. he's he seems to be on for someone who's achieved so much at such a young age incredibly motivated yeah like that yeah. must be just unbelievable to work with it is it's unbelievable to work with i mean um you can imagine for from my perspective the uh the experience and the learning from me from as you said there from 17 through till 28 now um 
being part of that journey and we we say this often when we're talking you know we've kind of grown together we're learning together along the way um which is you know a hugely important dynamic for any coach player relationship that uh, nothing is fixed from from either party and we can keep adapting and changing and learning from each other and other experiences um but as you say like for so many players that we know of throughout history they will achieve that world number 1 that world title that british open title and uh, you know and and that's enough that's the dream has been done and and then often following that they still do well but you can kind of see that uh, that, that is enough for them and uh, and it's maybe even you know too exhausting or or demanding to try to continue to do that or or as as Mo's done you know done that for for so long um and i i, I think one area which i find really fascinating with all players but particularly in the context of mo is the relationship between desperation and inspiration and how those two uh kind of drivers play a part in in the development of players and the development of individuals and it's been really fascinating to see how his journey that those those two drivers are have kind of they've shifted in certain ways um i think it's quite a common scenario that i'm sure you guys will have read you know and heard about many top athletes of agassi and all these people that have had periods of their career which they're driven by some things which you know to some extent can be almost kind of quite unhealthy but they are very desperation uh, orientated and then as time goes on and they figure themselves out more and they figure out what they want and how they want to achieve it, then it becomes, it shifts a bit more towards inspiration. Uh, and I've, uh, for, for my perspective, Mo is in a really healthy and exciting period of his career where there's that still that desperation to be, you know, like I say, smashing records and, and being on the, you know, the, the real hierarchy of the greatest players ever. But he's now inspired by his process more than he's ever been. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're talking about now and what we're seeing in, in his game. Is that something he's always had since you started working with him? So I remember the first time I saw him was actually a BSPA tournament with you, the guy that yeah. beat him after he'd beaten, I think it was Stacey Ross maybe in the yeah. previous round. Yeah. Um, up in Edinburgh. And yeah. I think he was about 16 at the time. Yeah. And it was clear that he had the attributes to be one of the best players in the world, even at mm-hmm. that young age. But what fascinates me about him is the way he's just constantly looking to adapt and evolve his game. And I'm just worried, I'm wondering if he's always had that since you started working with him or if that's something that's developed over time. I mean, for sure. And it's, it's again, interesting you mentioned that event because that was my first ever meeting with him. Um, I've got a feeling he actually turned 16 during that tournament. So he was 15 coming into it. <laughs> and he took out Stacey Ross, who was the two seed. I think Stacey was like 40 in the world at that point. And of course, a really high quality player. Um, and uh, yeah, we played, I think, quarterfinals. Um, and yeah, I, I managed to get through him with pure kind of wiliness and old man squash, really. I just, just, that one and all, to... tap out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 it was, yeah, yeah. It was, it was the most kind of extreme tactic maybe I've ever done, apart from once against Billy Hadrill. But I played, I played like pretty much a straight lob down the backhand wall and cross, cross court lobbed everything from anything that went on the forehand side. I just put it to the backhand because I couldn't see his forehand. If he hit the ball on the forehand <laughs> side, I genuinely couldn't see it. It was just going so fast, front forehand corner, I couldn't read it. So I just took that whole part of the game out. 
lifted and just ran up and down the backhand wall until he got bored and frustrated, basically, and um, eventually got him 3-2. But again, the point was there, Stuart, that what was so striking is, A, how hard he was to beat as a 15-year-old, but not really so much that, but that within, I would say, 10 minutes of the match finishing, uh, he'd come to fight. I was behind the courts kind of warming down and he came over and he was like, yeah, you know, fair play. You, you played well there. You, you know, you were, um, you were clever how you played me and, uh, you know, full credit to you. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, I just need to learn from that. And I'm like, wow, you know, this kid's 15, 16, <laughs> um, already has a really high level of respect. Preceding that, he'd already gone to Simon Park and Alex Goff and said, I just want to ask you, like the crowd got to me there. Hadrian played a weird game. It kind of really rattled me. And um, I just wonder what, you know, what advice can you give me for when the crowd kind of get behind you like that and you lose focus? Like, what did you do? How did you guys improve that? So he's gone to world three, world four within 10 minutes of losing to see what magic nuggets he can grab from that event and then showed respect to his opponent. And then I think even with me, he sort of said, you know, what, you know, what was your tactic, blah, blah, blah. Just gathered everything he could from that experience. And yeah. then onto, I, I forgot a feeling he beat Daryl the next week in, in uh, Canary Wolf qualifying. Um, it also strikes me he's also thinking, that'll never happen again to me. <laughs> yeah, oh, completely. Yeah, yeah, and it didn't. Actually, we didn't play again, so I still got the win. Yeah, 1-0. and See you later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's a prime example, you know, and um, yeah, there's, there's many attributes, but um, this this theme of respect actually is something which you know is is he shows and teaches me and I I relate a lot to other people to help them understand the value of this that his his value set you know includes certain things but at the forefront of that is respect um and uh you can imagine as what goes with that is that there's no arrogance there's no I'm better than everybody else there's no what does this guy know why is he even talking to me you know, some whoever amateur player could come along and say, Mo, you, you didn't volley enough. And he'll listen, you know, he'll show respect and he'll, you know, he'll take it on board. And um, considering how successful he has been right from the start, as we know, double world junior champion, British Open junior champion, he's always been respectful. And um, as an armory of amazing character traits, that's, that's certainly one of them. It was interesting as well on maybe a softer note, regarding some of his changes he mentioned yesterday in his post-match interview sorry to come back to that again but there was just so much to take from it but he mentioned about you know his diet and how that's changed and I couldn't I actually broke down laughing because I have this I'll never forget going down in my old 1987 Honda Civic with Baggy I think a young Sam Ellis and Tom Ford shout out fellas and uh, we stop off we're on the way from Bristol to St. George's we stop off at a service station. I think it was in Reading, halfway point, yeah. give or take. Yeah. I go in there, I get myself a nice little salad from Marks and Sparks, uh, an Americano, and, you know, keep myself lean and mean for the match. Baggy straight into McDonald's or Burger King. I'm not quite sure which one it was. Burger, chips, the works, can of Coke. And on the way out, there's a crispy creme stand. He gets six, <laughs> six dollars. Twelve, Arthur. 12. <laughs> he ate six on the way out. Sorry, that's right. Yeah, so he got 12 donuts, right? No, no, no. And I'm looking at this fella thinking, this guy's having a giraffe. Like, there's no way, right? And so, like, and I'm just, again, like, just putting emphasis on 
salad, Americano, <laughs> the Big Mac meal. So he gets these 12 donuts, right? And we're, you, you know, uh, Stuart as well. And it's kind of similar in the UK as well, Chris, with the uh, service stations. So you get it, you know, you, you, you walk to the car, bog standard, you drive out, you meet the motorway in about 500 yards, give or take. By the time we're on the motorway, and I look across there and he's licking his thumb and all his fingers and like, you know, sucking them, getting all the last bits of sugar. Six donuts, gone. <laughs> right? and, and we're about two hours later, he plays Daryl Selby and beats him 12, 10 in the fifth. And Shabagi <laughs> was no, sh- like, yeah, he was top, definitely top 20 in the world, possibly top 10. And Daryl was of a similar ranking. And I just, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And on, it was on the way back, didn't he? Because he skipped his meal at the match yeah. um, and did some solo. Well, we're all scoffing our dinner, and then on the way back, he had a he had a fried breakfast in the services at about like one in the morning. <laughs> uh, so the diets he's changed a little bit. It's just it's, it's slightly different to that. Yeah, <laughs> he, he looked he looked lean. I noticed yeah. it. Yeah, I noticed it right away. Um, mm. Super fit. Mm. And I I, I loved I loved how he just said uh, the one thing I loved about his post match interview was how he said, um, you know, it's 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 going to be, it's going to be hard to beat me. It's going to be physical. And I just love how he, uh, how he's so straight up and honest yeah. about it. Cause it's like, you have to respect it. Mm. And, um, you know, there's some other players that do that can get a bit bump, chippy and, mm. and after the game or even in the game, they make it look like, uh, you know, maybe their opponent did something for them to cause the contact and, He's just like, no, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a war when you come out mm. to play me, and I, I love mm. how he throws the challenges out there to the world, and then he backs it up. It's Completely, awesome. yeah, no, I agree, and I, I mean, yeah, I, I love the levels of, um, of honesty. A- any player, to be honest, that does that, you know, um, I mean, Joelle kind of opened up in one of her pre-match interviews as well, and I think the squash public really respect hearing the players. You know, I'm not saying pour everything out, but just be quite upfront and honest about what they're thinking how they're feeling and it, it just helps everyone to feel closer to them doesn't it and uh, for sure get a real insight and actually I think in a way that the event being so uh, kind of closed off created a bit more of an intimacy that maybe wasn't normally there like when the camera was following the players round after they'd finished even into the back of the courts just can be kind of insight like where's he going now what's he oh he's talking to his brother and you know there's like some really uh really magic moments there so you know, i hope they can kind of keep that stuff going because it was it was real really very real yeah you mentioned joel and and there's obviously this marwan as well so you, you know mm-hmm. three players in the draw this week i think we'll know the answer to the first question but just related to the second i mean how did you get them i'm assuming they all prepared differently for it mm-hmm. and and this might relate to some of your some of the other players of Bristol. Like, how are you managing them, or how are they managing themselves in relation to getting back playing, having having it been so long? Mm, that's a good question. Um, Thank you. For, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's so differently, uh, so differently. I mean, uh, as you can imagine, I'm sure we all responded kind of. Or, dealt with, responded in different ways to this whole last period. Um, and I mean, part, from, from my perspective, like part of it is, is respecting what works best for them. Um, and just, it was, it was a lot to do with when we knew the events were likely to start, like that really defined um, 
kind of what to do next. Preceding that, there was a complete cross-section between someone like Joel, who would continue to be uh, reasonably active each day, be out doing stuff, going for runs, bike rides, doing some Pilates online, doing some different study, and just generally kind of keeping herself ticking over versus Mo and Marwan, who uh, slept probably for two weeks, played a lot of PlayStation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even probably three, four weeks, I'd say, uh, you know, not not a lot going on, a little, uh, some bike rides. And and also what's really interesting, actually, is that for the first time in living in Bristol for 10 years, they went and did things and saw places and never really ridden, gone on a bike ride before. You know, so they were like cycling out to Bath and going to like the countryside and to the sea and just seeing a world that they've never had the time or desire to even see in the past. So that was really fascinating as, as like it would never happen if it wasn't for this whole kind of lockdown period. So there was definitely a phase initially where it was like, okay, you don't have to play. You don't really have to train. There's nothing happening. We don't know what's going next. So grab a bike, you know, get out on the road, go see some places, have a life, um, which was fantastic. And I'm sure plenty of you know, other players did that as well when they, when they were able to. Um, and then really as, as things started to move towards the event or the event possibles, uh, you know, there was sort of talk possibly or late August, September, October, and it was kind of bouncing around that period. Then, um, then things started to take more shape really after that. Uh, and again, they, you know, they all kind of did it in different ways, really. Um, with with Joel, we were still ticking over a little bit. Uh, as soon as we were allowed to operate in an open space, we were actually just using parks and just uh, doing some work on movement, um, coordination, balance, different things which we could do where we don't need a squash court. Uh, similar with Todd Harity as well. We were doing a lot of stuff actually just in a, like an underground car park, just hitting balls against walls and having fun mainly. Um, but yeah, as I said, as it kind of got closer to the time, like Mo and Marmon especially were just sort of like ticking over just about staying healthy. Uh, and then when, when it was time to go, then it's like, boom, everything switched, you know, the whole lifestyle changed and they started to, to really focus and um, uh, get on with things. And, and certainly with Mo, Mo and Joel, we, um, we started well, actually, Mo had already been working with a new trainer that he mentioned, Llewellyn Holmes. Um, so we started with him pretty much straight after uh, Channel Vaz last year. Um, I kind of made the call that I, I think we needed, I thought we needed to to change how he was training because he was getting very tired and matches getting quite heavy. He kept saying he felt weak, wanted to lift more and get stronger. Uh, and I was kind of making a very strong point to him that I don't, I don't think that was the solution. That I think he needed lightness um, and and more freedom in his movement, and that strength to be more functional, essentially. So, who could we find to really help him in that area? And uh, we found Llewellyn at that point, and he had a great period into TOC and following there, where, where the impact was starting to really show. And then similarly with Joel, and then basically Llewellyn kind of picked up the baton again midway through the summer. You know, doing a lot with him. Um, and then I was starting to do some sessions with him, as you might have seen, <laughs> first time in 20, yeah, 20 odd years. I know, I know. A bit of biometrics on my Yeah, a bit of biometrics <laughs> and yeah, all sorts of crazy stuff. And I've been really enjoying it. It's partly for my own 
you know, well-being and just trying to keep my body going, but also just so that I was experiencing what he was doing with them and we're kind of in the same space quite a lot. Um, so that, you know, that piece of the puzzle was actually huge. And again, I think as a product of a longer period of time um, to think about the best ways to do things until the event started, it kind of gave us that space to really make some, you know, accurate decisions and have, you know, long conversations about, right, really where can we get the biggest bang for our buck in your physicality in your movement in your gameplay in your mindset in your attitudes and all these things um so you know i, I i've really uh <laughs> really enjoyed this not all of the craziness that's going across all the world obviously there's some horrible stuff going on but at the same time i've tried to really um maximize this break and opportunity to from a coaching point of view innovate learn find better ways to, to help these guys you know prepare for these events um and joelle's kind of in an interesting position where there's mm. a with the retirement of an email with Ely herself mm. we mentioned uh preceding the event that maybe joelle and camille could feel that this is an opportunity to get to that number one spot with uh you know a sequence of big events back to back and if one of those two players could hit that purple patch and the stage that they're at in their careers is that something that's being talked about openly or is that just something that could just be our hot take as well, by the way? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you, you, the, the commentators were saying that a bit, weren't they, as well during, um, you know, during the early stages of the event that, you know, they, I think Joey was saying at some point, you know, could see what she Joel won it last year, but that she could be a, a possible favourite for the tournament. You know, she had um, the potential to do very well there. Um, and... Yes, uh, I, you know we we all believe she has the potential to to beat all the other girls, um, and with that, rankings can improve. Uh, but as you can see, even how I'm phrasing it here, the way that Joelle or our team around Joelle um, are working, and this is being led by her, and also our journey so far really and and how I see she's played her best squash in the periods of time when she's really um really been performing well is she has prioritized um the process way beyond the results um has focused you know as best as possible on enjoying playing uh enjoying playing the kind of squash that makes her uh makes her most happy but she feels that it's her at her best um and having that as the goal and the target primarily and then let the results come to her yeah um and you know it's interesting you should mention that as well because the the period where she well when we first started working together it was post british open god i don't know maybe four years ago now post british open um and she was kind of at rock bottom at that point where she'd had a bad period she had an injury she'd come back she was struggling to kind of make her way back into the rankings and um, was quite disillusioned so we had a kind of pact was just like well let's just like wipe the slate clean and um you know i said to her look regardless of whether you get back in the top 10 or you or your ranking even goes down like i'm not driven by that at this stage what I'm driven by is seeing you 
if and when you're going to finish your career, or when you finish your career, that you finish it satisfied with a smile on your face, that you've really enjoyed that last period and you don't go out kind of slogging away, trying to break back in and, and, it, and it not be a pleasant experience, which it wasn't at the time. Um, so that, that vision for us was like, right, we're going to get you playing in this way. We're going to get you moving well. We're going to get you enjoying hitting short, varying the pace and, and playing the kind of all-round squash perhaps you've always dreamed of. We're going to do that whatever. And if you win stuff, great. And if you don't win stuff, fine. But let's, let's make that pack now that that's what we're going to do. And as a product of that, you know, quite quickly, she had some really positive results and moved back in the top 10 and did very well. But then as often as the case, she actually then had a period where um, she won Hong Kong and she beat, um, I think, pretty much all the girls, like one after the other. I think the only one she didn't play was maybe Shabini, but she beat Ranim and Tayeb and SJ, like all three loves and beat Ranim in the final three love. And then suddenly, you know, the world was like, God, she could win the world, you know, she could be number one. And there was some talk around that. And there was a bit in the press and a few interviews and this, that and the other. And I remember at the time thinking, this worries me a bit, actually, because, um, you know, that level of expectation is then suddenly start to kind of rise up. And I don't, you know, of course, you want high aspirations, but at the same time, I don't want the process to be affected by this. And uh, and she did really struggle with that. She struggled with backing up that success. And then the, the following period wasn't so good. So, you know, this time around, again, she's had some tough times over the last 12, 18 months. And we sort of looked at the beginning of lockdown and kind of gone, we've sort of gone full circle here. We're back to, back to where we were at the beginning with this sort of blank slate. You know, the last period's been very tough. You've not been playing so well. You're not being enjoying yourself so much. So let's go back to where we started at the beginning of this season and go, right, you know, you're going to step on the court feeling inspired, positive, you know, and really, uh, really passionate about playing the kind of squash you want to play for the right reasons. And, um, and let's, let's, you know, whatever those results might be, let's let them come to us. So this first event was a good gauge to see how things are, how she played, what worked, what didn't work. And we just watched the game with Camille this morning, went back through that um took what we needed from it and she's in a really positive mindset to go on to the next event now so you know the point being that yes of course in the back of my mind I'm thinking I'd love you to be world number one you know and I'd love you to be world champion but that's not why we're doing what we're doing so it's more about self-improvement first world number two is a bonus well world, yeah. excuse me world number one <laughs> world, world number one is a bonus yeah yeah um and you know i mean i think it's such a big thing for everyone and i know it's a bit more extreme but you listen to guad's interview after mo and okay we kind of would expect it from guad but he's saying you know my parents never put any pressure on me i play because i love it i don't think about the outcome um and i just stick at my process and do my thing and you know for some particularly for an Egyptian, <laughs> you know, how unusual is that? Uh, you know, parents that are putting the pressure on. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it's interesting because what I love about that is for me, what he's saying is like, this is how I'm choosing to play this sport. And there's people all over the world going, Jesus, why are you not number one? You're unbelievably good. Why are you not winning world titles? What are you doing, Gawad? You know, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, is like, this is who I am. This is how I want to play. This is how I want to think about the sport. And maybe if his goals and his vision where I need to win a hundred world titles and dominate the sport, you probably wouldn't enjoy it and it'd probably stop or play badly, you know? So I think you've got to own your story, haven't you? When you, when you, uh, when you're a professional, anything, yeah. figure out what that story is for you. Cause for Mo, it's completely different. You know, Mo wants the titles. He wants to be on the record books and that's, you know, part of who he is and what makes his tick. But for Joel and other people that I work with, it's totally different and it's figuring out 
you know, how to um, balance that to get the best performance. I loved watching that final because their, their personalities like perfectly complement and match their squash games. And then the post-game interviews really match how the, you know, how the, <laughs> how the match felt when you were watching. Mm. And uh, yeah, even in the biggest moments, Kawad, like his grip is so loose. And then he puts mm. in this perfect winner in the biggest moment. And, and in the biggest moments, Muhammad is like ultra confident and ultra, mm. you know, his, his chest kind of puffs out. And it, it's awesome how mm. their squash matches that, that personality. Um, Completely. So fun yeah. to watch. Yeah, it really is, especially like you say when it's when it's so contrasting like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why we love it. I'm sure. Anything else, fellas? <laughs> <laughs> Just been sitting and listening. It's been great. Yeah, it's been, <laughs> good. It's been great. So, so uh, I mean, we've spoken enough about Mohammed and Gawad there. I mean, it was an amazing final, but the women's didn't fail to live up to expectation either. Tayeb as takes the first claim for the world number one spot post Raneem retirement. Stuart, talk us through it. Yeah, I mean, slightly different just because the unlike the men's draw where you had, well, initially you had everyone in the top 10 in the draw, but obviously Diego and uh, Rodriguez had to pull out. But the women's draw was obviously missing the top two players in the, in the, in the world, so maybe didn't have quite the same significance. But you basically had the, the number three and four in the world in the final top two seeds. Um, Camille came out absolutely flying in the first game. I think she went about 7-1 up, uh, hitting really positively and volleying virtually everything she could. Um, hitting aggressively to the back, taking it in, and just right from the start was on top. Um, then early in the second, you could see Taya was just starting to move a little bit better and starting to extend the rallies. Uh, she got a good start in the second, and then Camille came back, and that was kind of the turning point you kind of sensed that Camille needed that second game to go two love up to give herself a chance because you could see the momentum was just starting to shift but um, I think Camille got back to about 8-9 and then Taya managed to to close out the game actually from a couple of errors if I remember rightly which was the first indication that Camille was maybe starting to feel the, her exertions she had a very tough draw going through the the event, as we've spoken about. Um, Your memory serves you well, Stuart. A few mistakes it was. Yeah, it was. Um, and then again, wasn't that much in it in the third, but um, just felt like Taeb always had the slight edge, both in terms of the, the squash and the, the run of play. Um, and again, starting to starting to stop Camille volleying, which I think is the key when you play Camille. I think if you let her dominate that mid-court area, then it's really tough. But if you can really extend the court and get her back and then take her forward. Um, Ty have actually said at the end, she, she came out with a really funny quote at the end of the match, um, which was that she wasn't really feeling her short game, but she decided to win the boring way like Ali does. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I really liked. <laughs> And I think she it. said it initially not realising how offensive that could be and then realised and then stuck with it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get um, mad at your wife, right? That's like really Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're in, they're in then, separate rooms for this week as well, right? Everyone's in separate <laughs> rooms. Yeah, he had also gone home, she said. So apparently as soon as he lost, he flew, he flew back to Egypt the next morning. So he wasn't even in Manchester by the time the final came around. Yeah, so he was in the doghouse. That's why she threw a jab at him. 
Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then by that point, we've spoken a lot this week about Tayeb and when she gets momentum, she can be hard to stop. And that's the way it turned in the, uh, in the fourth game. Fourth game was 11-3, but it was actually still 10 minutes long. So it probably wasn't as one-sided as the score suggests. But it just felt like Tayeb. I always feel with Tayeb that one of the challenges is that she can play so many different ways that she doesn't quite know how to play. But then once she figures it out and she susses that this tactic's working, she's so ruthless and relentless and just going after that one weakness or sticking to one thing that's working. And that's kind of how it felt. She she recognized what was working well. She was able to deprive Camille from getting in front and volleying and she just did it relentlessly until eventually paid off. Yeah, that, that was one of my biggest takeaways is like when you're watching Camille, she she has like very particular patterns, right? And she does change it up every once in a while, usually, but she plays that like working game. She vault, she works the person on the volley. She works it in straight a lot. And then every once in a while, she'll throw in a little, you know, a little flick cross or something, which usually works because people are expecting her, her kind of first option a lot of times. But like Nor was just like super creative and sometimes it's almost weird right she'll have like an attacking ball in the front she'll just throw up like a little a little lob or something um but I kind of like it and I think that's what makes her so hard to play is she's so creative um and doesn't necessarily follow uh follow many patterns she just like keeps the person guessing the entire time and I'm always impressed I never think she's gonna get to balls and her uh her last like split on the on those deep lunges she gets under like every single ball it's uh pretty pretty amazing um but yeah I like the contrast in this match too I thought it made it a lot really fun to watch I thought she did a really good job of actually curtailing her attacking instincts and not opening up too early against um against Camille she really made sure she did the basics well she got the ball to the back wall she got herself in front and then that gave her the freedom and took a little bit of pressure. They, they mentioned this in commentary, how she always looks so relaxed, but I think deep down she does, she is someone that feels pressure and struggles a little bit with that. Um, but just not feeling this sense that she had to hit winners in the front of the court because she was able to stop Camille from volleying, I think helped her out a lot. Do you think some of her reasoning for not going for opening the court up too much too early was mainly to do with to try take some of the sting out of Camille's legs, knowing that she'd had a few more miles on the clock this week? And that maybe also that if she wasn't finding her range quick enough that in, into the front two corners that Camille could get in front a little bit easier than she would have liked. And maybe Camille would then from there dominate the majority of the game. Yeah, completely. She definitely didn't, didn't want the rallies to be too short. Um, and again, like you say, she didn't want too many opportunities for Camille to get a ball that she could do stuff with in the front or the middle of the court. Um, which again probably goes against her natural instincts, but once she once she sensed that it was paying off, she was so committed to it and just made the rallies longer and harder. And actually, I was really impressed with the, the physical uh, status of most of the players this week. But I actually thought the the two finals were potentially won on physicality. I think you saw it in the men's match where Shibagi just would not go away and. Gawad started to fade, even though it was tight and it was hard work. And he 
clearly didn't give up, but you could just see him dropping off physically a little bit. And I think the women's final was similar in that Camille probably just didn't have the same sort of durability that you normally see from her. It's quite amazing, actually. I think we touched on it earlier on before we started recording that the uh, the whole week for fresh. Hey, hey, look, geez, the size of the big man. Jeez, <laughs> 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 geez, that's definitely a chip off the old block, isn't it? Yeah, it's mini, mini me. Mini Hadrian there on the uh, on the pod. <laughs> I can't remember where it's going. Oh yeah, the physicality. Nobody really got hurt this week. I know Tessney had a minor issue, but as she said in her audio diary, it's nothing major, so she's all good, which is great news. Um, but amazing that for no competition, and granted training is different and practice matches are different, and we know that competition can bring anxiety levels and stress levels up higher and breed tension in the body that can lead to more stiffness and soreness. But Everyone came through, uh, at least to our knowledge, although maybe half the PSA tour is thinking they got hit by a bus yesterday as the tournament comes to a close. <laughs> but no one's going to open up to that. <laughs> I played doubles on Monday and I'm still stiff. <laughs> um, well, before we wrap up, guys, any highlights? Well, there's lots of highlights, but let's pick one highlight of the week for us each. How about that? Adrian, let's start with you. I mean, you've got lots of highlights, man. <laughs> well, like, well there's an obvious one <laughs> um i mean yeah my, my kind of my my sensible highlight is as i said seeing mo play the kind of squash that we are trying to create in him and seeing how that can still get so much better and that's just super exciting um my funny highlight is when he came off the court having just tapped rackets with goad um and I didn't know this, I couldn't quite hear it at the time, but he looked up to the referee and he said, uh, you smiled a lot more in this event, uh, a lot more than you did at Canary Wharf. I think you should keep that up. <laughs> <laughs> He's literally like 10 seconds after winning. Um, but uh, it was a highlight for me, partly because he um, <clears throat> it just sort of showed how at ease he was even after a you know a huge final like that that he's he's instantly into you know being so human and uh, and it was also a funny little moment cool being Stuart I think my highlight was just having professional squash back on squash tv um it's been over six months and I know personally I had missed watching high level squash and to see the level that everyone was playing at was was great um looking forward to more of it and in Egypt next week and also the event following that. So, yeah, if I had to pick a single match, I think my favourite match of the week was probably the Marwan match where he took out Ali Farag. I thought that was a really intriguing match for a number of reasons. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was probably my highlight in terms of matches. Mr. Sakvi? Yeah, I think finals day was my highlight. I liked uh I liked the contrast in, in both matchups. Um and uh just yeah, the way the squash played out. Um I thought was awesome. So looking forward to uh to Egypt. Um what's our what's our time change? It's it's interesting waking up every day and having, you know, being halfway through the matches in those early rounds. Another hour. Another hour. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I think the schedule is only evening matches, so I think you might be okay. Okay. Chris, that's where you got to get yourself a, a, a wee one. I mean, I have a personal alarm in Nola. She wakes up at like 6.37. Happy days. No yeah. mission. Yeah. 
I think for me, a highlight was the same as Stuart with uh, Ali Farag and Marwan Al Shabagi. That was a cracker of a match. And I suppose another one, I just love talking to you boys about squish. It was great. Mm. <laughs> Happy days. <laughs> All right. Um, Hadrian, thanks a million for coming on. Thanks for sharing uh, no some insights into your relationship with uh, the two Shabagi brothers and uh, Joel. Chris, Stuart, legends. Uh, thanks, Adrian. Cheers, guys. Thank yeah, you. Good to, good to talk to you. Yeah, great chopping it up. Happy days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another episode yeah. in the bank. Oh, yeah. I miss squash. And the post-Manchester Depression blues. Uh, <laughs> 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 Only five days to Egypt. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. It's a long five days, man. <laughs>